0: Hello, hello, this is Rebecca Adio and Maggie Bacella, and this is Does It Get the Pass? A podcast where we arbitrarily decide whether rom-coms get the pass.
1: This week, what we are deciding whether or not gets the pass is the 1953 film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks, and starring, we got a lot of names here, so bear with me, um, Jane Russell as Dorothy Shaw, Marilyn Monroe as Lorelai Lee, Elliot Reid as Ernie Malone, and Tommy Noonan as Gus Esmond.
0: And our per-letterbox description, Lorelai Lee is a beautiful showgirl engaged to be married to the wealthy Gus Esmond, much to the disapproval of his rich father, who thinks that Lorelai is just after his money. When Lorelai goes on a cruise accompanied only by her best friend, Dorothy Shaw, Esmond Sr. hires Ernie Malone, a private detective, to follow her and report any questionable behavior that would disqualify her from the marriage. So this is, I would say, two parts, uh rom-com and one part sort of you know the traditional caper tale of of 1950s cinema but this is the first time we've gone back past what about 1980 on the pod this is our first old hollywood offering so i'm very excited about that i was kind of
1: torn between this one and uh, how to marry a millionaire for our first classic rom-com um, but I just saw um how to marry a millionaire quite recently. And that's another Marilyn Monroe rom com as well. And I was like, oh, I, I'd rather go with something I haven't seen before. And so that's why I put this one up as an option. It's also a really trim 91 minutes, which was a godsend for both of us because I had a bunch of shit due today and Maggie we forgot that we were recording today. So it was a good, it was a good fit for the pod this week and it just worked out like that. But, yeah, I I was initially like, oh, my God, I don't know if this is enough of a rom-com because I was like, it's very much like like a buddy, like a girl's buddy movie. Mm -hmm. Although the way that I started to think about it was like, it's two girls creating their own rom-com situation, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's like where the rom-com part comes in.
0: I mean the the like. There's a whole B plot to this. I don't know if you call it a B plot or just a a, a heavily plot. featured detail. Is that basically just they get on this cruise ship and every man on this cruise ship is in love with them because they are hot. And I think that in and of itself makes this a rom com because the plot is entirely about men being in love with these two women, mostly Lorelai because of. You know, everything we will get into later about Marilyn Monroe's sort of sex symbol status, whatever, whatever. But yeah, this doesn't follow the the sort of structure of a traditional rom-com, I would say, in that, like, boy meets girl, their relationship develops, they have a happy ending. Though there is a double wedding at the end of this movie, so I will, I, the fact that it ends with a double wedding, I'm like, that's proof enough that it's a rom-com. If there's a wedding, it's definitely a rom-com. But... Yeah, I I was so fascinated by this movie just from start to finish. I'm a big old Hollywood person. I think some of my favorite movies come from that sort of pre-1970s sort of reimagining of cinema where things became a little bit more naturalistic, a little more realistic. You know, it was post Marlon Brando, you know, Streetcar Named Desire, realistic. I can't remember. Is it Stanislavski, the, the acting system that's like really puts an emphasis on realism? Yes. I was gonna say it's, it's the whole mega acting thing yeah yeah but it, so this was I'm i am such a big fan of old Hollywood that predated that because it's such a, a massive production in a way that we kind of lost with contemporary filmmaking when we move towards realism because you know we've talked about films like Crazy Rich Asians on this podcast that have massive budgets and have these massive sort of bits of opulence in these massive set pieces but because we're leaning towards realism there's no big musical numbers in studios anymore which this film relies pretty heavily on obviously this is the uh this is the origin of the famous pink dress diamonds are girls best friend sequence but what i didn't know is that this is based on a real like a stage musical from i believe Mm 1948-49 that starred carol channing of all people yeah,
1: it's got like I was looking at a lot of like um Marilyn Monroe movies and a lot of them are based on plays and books. Mm-hmm. Um like so she's doing a lot of like adaptation work and yeah this one is a stage musical. I have listened to it before mm-hmm. just because the songs are so iconic and um I'm so like I did not realize that um that Dorothy, who's Jane Russell's character, she does her own version of diamonds are a girl's best friend at the end of the movie she in is. the grand gesture scene. We will talk about that when we get to the uh grand gestures part of this podcast episode. But um yeah, I I really really liked it. Like I think that my favorite probably like uh old Hollywood movie is 42nd Street, which is another like kind of it's a music movie about making a musical and doing show business so it's kind of like this one um and it has a lot of big production it's black and white it's pre-haze code it's really really it's just so good um but yeah i'm i'm really glad that we had this as our first like like classic hollywood rom-com just because i feel like you know with diamonds our girl's best friend it is so iconic and you've got these two really famous actresses from this period like at the top of their game like this is jane russell's like best movie like on a lot of people like this is what she was known for at the time um and also just because i don't know where else i'm gonna say this there is a sequel with jane russell and some other woman called gentleman mary brunettes
0: oh i've not heard of that how much like how, how many years after very... that did it come out
1: um i think it came out like a few years after but um it was not like as well regarded like the other actress it isn't even ranked as like in her like top boxed or whatever um but yeah it's it exists there is a sequel that exists about oh my god there the is and mary brunette it's playing very much into the you date the Marilyn but mary the jackie kind of dynamic about mm-hmm. um you can have and i think that the this movie actually does play into a lot of those stereotypes about um you know, being blonde makes you ditzy and frivolous and just the girlfriend, but being a brunette makes you the wife. I mean, the title is called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah. Um, and we are both non-blondes. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: we are both much like Marilyn herself. We are both bottle blondes. And I went, I'm i glad you brought that up because there, I watching this, I've never seen a Marilyn Monroe film before. So this was my first exposure to her. Um, And I'm glad that I hadn't before because, you know, I... There, there is always going to be conversation around Marilyn Monroe and what her legacy is and was she a good actress or was she just a bimbo. But watching this, I think really, she was 27 when they shot this, so not that much older than me. I really think she saw what Hollywood thought of her and said, you know what, I'm going to make that my brand and make them my bitch. Like, it, it's not, comparatively to every other actor in the film... She, I mean, Jane Russell, obviously they're doing, they're working in tandem, but, like, those two are blowing everybody else out of the water. At no point is Marilyn Monroe struggling to keep up with anybody in this movie. I mean, she's the, I I would argue that Jane Russell is the funniest one in this movie, Mm -hmm. but she's got some damn zingers. There's that line at the end when she's talking to Gus's father where she says you know, I can be smart when it's important, but men don't tend to like it. And I'm like, that's genius. And I believe I was reading the IMDb trivia for this, that she came up with that line. She, that was not in the script. So I I wanted to talk a- about Marilyn Monroe specifically as an icon, because I feel like especially with the recent release of Blonde, the uh, very fairly panned biopic starring Ana de Armas, I feel like there's people have tried to lessen her impact on hollywood they've tried to treat her like she wasn't a good actress but and i i wanted to make sure we discussed that because i feel like she gets swept under the rug just as like the like you mentioned the idea of you date the marilyn you marry the jackie you know what i mean
1: um mm-hmm. uh, mina lay has a really amazing video about Marilyn specifically and she talks about like how she's a really good comedy actress and so like this is her bread and butter and she plays a lot of roles like this like as a showgirl or a singer or a dancer or an actress um marrying some rich guy like the gentleman and the showgirl directed and starring laurence olivier is another rom-com that i did consider for the pod mm-hmm. um and she plays almost the same exact role, and it's a, such a smart movie too because she's working, and and Mina Lay says this in her video. She's working with a lot of these stereotypes and inserting them into the narrative of these films. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like an overarching thing. Like she had, she did like a Western movie. Um, And I know that like there's an actual pinup poster of her in the movie. So it's a very meta Mm -hmm. moment. And then in this one, it's even sometimes just in a throwaway line. And I think that like Marilyn absolutely knew what her role in Hollywood was and was very meta about it and very outspoken about um, how she was going to get treated and how her characters were going to get treated. I feel like Marilyn is someone who had such love for the characters she played because Mm -hmm. they were just like her, I think. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, they are. She's playing to you know obviously this is pre-realism this is pre-Stanislavsky but she's playing to a realism that doesn't often exist in these movies you know like Jane Russell is is playing a the you know the kind of for lack of a better word bitchy best friend here and but you can kind of tell it's a put on you can tell it's a character and but just watching her it was so fascinating because you know based based on every expression on her face every movement she makes she is hyper aware. Of every single action she's making, and it's all in service of both the scene and this character that she's trying to play, and I—it will never make sense to me when pe- the that, that people say she's just that she was just a dumb blonde that she only got ahead because she was pretty. But here's the thing: she gamed a studio system that fucking hated women. You know, the studio system, no matter what way you slice it, even now is incredibly degrading and incredibly shitty to women especially attractive women because they the studio system thinks of them as only props for you know male sexuality and so it's she's gaming the shit out of a system that was you know fundamentally trying to destroy her career shit a lot of studio executives call her stupid Should a lot of studio executives call her bimbo but it's like she knew what she could get out of this. She knew that men were always going to... And I mean, that's what this whole movie's about. Like, women exactly. knowing that men have the power and learning how to... And using that to their advantage and knowing how to manipulate it. I mean, that scene where they're trying to get the, the camera negatives off of Malone. And they come up with this massive, you know, scheme to, to, to get him out of both his jacket and then his pants to see if the negatives are in either of those... It, I mean, it's comedic genius for one thing. It, it, Howard Hawks, the way he set that up, is genius, but just character wise, it's so clever. Like, yeah, these women know that men only see them as objects, that men only see them as things to be seduced. So, yeah, let's use that to our advantage and drug this dude and get him out of his clothes to find the negative. And it works. It's not, there's no ending where it's like, you know, oh, poor us, it, it still didn't work. And, you know, that's the comedy of it. Like, no it works in the end, and that's the genius about it. And I think I saw a letterboxd review of this movie that said this was kind of the pinnacle of femininity in the 50s, and I honestly agree with that. Like, I think, despite the fact that I know this script was probably playing into a lot of, like, oh, look at how silly these women are, in 2023, it's like, no, these women were fucking geniuses. Yeah, I think, and you know what? I think reflexive
1: readings are just as valid as, like, taking the script for what what it is. I I think that... I think it's pretty fair that we are doing a slightly reflexive reading of this movie. Mm -hmm. I think that this is peak feminism. Um, Like, I think that Dorothy and Lorelai's conversations about love are so intelligent and razor sharp. And it's like, I feel like if you're making a movie about romance, of course it needs to be sweet, needs to be like saccharine and romantic, but I feel like you should also be saying something tangible about what it means to love mm-hmm. um and i think that a lot of rom-coms nowadays or even in the last like 15 or 20 years are missing that we, we don't hear those conversations about like what actually matters in a relationship or like what actually matters when you're falling in love with someone and i think that we get that almost all the way through in this script and i think that that's amazing um I really like I don't know Malone as a character he was he was very fascinating to me I like he was so fun I, I loved I know. him yeah I um I think that well I want to say that Marilyn's character so Lorelai and Gus are kind of like the b plot, quote-unquote romance just because yeah. they're already together at the beginning of the movie and they have a little like series of falling outs, but they obviously get married in the end because it's a double wedding but i think that i would call dorothy and ernie the um the a romance oh yeah
0: yeah because yeah. it's the 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 entire reason they end up together is because ernie malone is the private investigator hired by gus's father to make sure that Lorelei's is not doing anything unscrupulous on this cruise and his way of doing that his way of getting close to lorelei is by for lack of a better word seducing dorothy and it's, he's, it's so cute because it's like, Dorothy, obviously, Dorothy's looking for love. She has an entire number about, you know, wanting to fall in love. And it's this massive number with a bunch of shirtless men. It's incredible. It's incredible it's on the so Olympic many levels. team, too. Yeah. So she obviously, yeah. she obviously wants to fall in love, but she's so... Resistant to him specifically, and you know, you know that is my shit. You know it's my shit when they kind of go from sparring to being in love with each other. And there's this moment where Dorothy's in their cabin on this cruise ship, and Ernie's just left or Malone's just left and she's really crabby. And Lorelai's looking at her like, "What? What's going on?" And she goes, "I think I'm in love with that." And she ca- or she calls him something. What did she call him? She called oh, him like a scab gosh. or a oh she she. Anyway, she's like I think I'm falling in love with him, but she tacked an insult on to the end of that and it was so funny. And and it's and it's not like that's the A plot either. Like the A plot of this is really like Lorelai getting into all of these misadventures Tranigans. because of her yeah. because of her nature. And then the the next plot down, like the B plot there, is then Malone and Dorothy. But when it does pop up, I as soon as it happened, as soon as he was trying to romance her the first time, I'm like, oh, they're going to fall in love. Fuck yes. Yeah, I think that,
1: like, and that's why I'm like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely a rom-com. But the girls are manufacturing a rom-com for themselves, yes. I think, because Dorothy, she's like... She says she doesn't like him. She's, like, like at first, and she fights with him. But you can tell that she's so into him from, like, the moment they meet. I even wrote down, like, one of my notes for today was, like, Esmond and Dorothy as... Wait, no, not Esmond. I don't know where I got Esmond from. Malone and Dorothy <laughs> as enemies to lovers. And I think yeah. that, like, they're a very, like, a very 50s take on that enemies to lovers. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if this movie gets the pass, but I almost don't care because... Everything works out in the end anyways. Um, yeah, you know
0: the like, I don't know if the romances either Gus and Lorelei or Malone and Dorothy are prevalent enough in the narrative to even have the past be relevant in that sense because yeah. like I said, the a plot is Lorelei getting into trouble, uh primarily because there is a tiara. she's so she's on this she's on this cruise. And she obviously is committed to Gus, but here's the thing: Lorelai is very interested in money. She only wants to marry a millionaire. And you know what? Good for you, girl. Like you have standards. Get in the back. But so there's a there's an older gentleman who's literally called Piggy, which feels like a capitalist pig joke 50 years before its time, who is trying to romance Lorelai and obviously cheat on his wife. And his wife is on the boat with him, and she has this Tiara. And eventually, what happens is that somebody thinks that Lorelai stole the tiara, and that's where sort of pretty much everything from like the back half of the movie—that's you know what propels the plot. So that so I don't think that the romance between either of the couples is strong enough to really consider the past, just because. And I don't even think that it does because one, I I guess you could say it doesn't get the past because. Lorelai is trying to game Piggy out of his money and is that considered infidelity, whatever, whatever. But also, I think because they're trying to create this scenario for themselves, I don't think it's because i don't think she was really in love with gus i think she's definitely even by the end of the movie she's still like i like you i could spend my life with you but i'm not in love with you like i don't think there are feelings involved so i'm not all that bothered by the yeah piggy subplot especially because that's the more prevalent thing than the romance you know yeah like the like i said the
1: shenanigans are the a plot and i think that's good and but like (laughs) it's weird because like even the a plot is propelled forward by these moments of romance because like we Mm -hmm. don't find out like the consequences of lorelei's shenanigans without malone there and malone is there romancing dorothy it's like so like it's like a1 and a2
0: yeah you know what i mean that's yeah yeah i feel like that's a consequence of old hollywood and the way that films were structured you know people love a love story so that's what they leaned on and i wish we would go back to that idea that you know not just not just to have you know the hot people fall in love because that's what happens in most you know action films now but there was a certain saccharine nature to old hollywood that valued a love story that valued a romance so i think that's the reason why that was sort of intertwined in there because you could remake this movie take that out and it would still be a a functioning film but also i should note Howard Hawks is responsible for two other major, what I would consider, rom-coms in old Hollywood. The film uh, His Girl Friday and then also Bringing Up Baby. Both of those are these rom-coms where the A-plot is not necessarily the romance, it is shenanigans. It's essentially these rom-coms with this overlay of shenanigans because His Girl Friday is about this couple who are both reporters who used to be married and got a divorce and then shit happens. There is a prison breakout. There's murder. It's a whole weird thing. And by the end of the film, they've argued so much that, you know, they've fallen back in love and, you know, bringing a baby is very similar. So I think that's kind of a Howard Hawks, like trademark almost. I'm only familiar with those three films of his, but I feel like that's definitely, you know, his mark on old Hollywood because there are very few other directors who, A, I know by name from old Hollywood and B, I know for those kinds of Specifically romantic movies, because there are a lot of like you mentioned Laurence Olivier earlier. Obviously, Laurence Olivier is incredibly important to the history of cinema, but his work was not marked by romance. You know, he did Hamlet. He was primarily a theater. He was primarily a drama actor, a theater actor. That's what the Olivier Awards are named after. But like, so I, I wonder if it's it's a combination of both the just nature of old Hollywood and also Howard Hawks specifically as a director.
1: I think it's definitely both um, just because he is one of the few names from old Hollywood that I know in directors wise, because like nowadays, I think that we care a little bit more about directors like, oh, it's the newest Nolan film. It's the newest Gerwig film. It's the newest Mm -hmm. Anderson film. Whereas back then you would go see a movie based on the stars like, oh, I'm going to go see a Joan Crawford movie or I'm going to go see a a Marilyn Monroe movie or a Jane Russell movie Um, like that's that's how they marketed these films by the actors, not necessarily by the directors um and i think but i think that the the romance is like the number one thing i mean that's what i'm associating most old hollywood films with like Mm -hmm. the romance movies or the fact that every movie just had a romance and i don't necessarily think that's a fault i think more movies need romance i i think it's fun and silly even if it's
0: not the a plot i'd like it to be the b plot or make it a c-plot or something um i mean it's I like know. ant-man and the wasp like we we've talked about yeah. that as a rom-com on this podcast and i definitely think that the a-plot of that film is obviously supposed to be you know ant-man saving the world from another supervillain. but just as prevalent is the two romance plots so i think it's still possible in contemporary hollywood yeah. i think contemporary hollywood just has a severe distaste for anything that's not a straight like buy the books, Marvel movie at at this point. Yeah. It's like
1: play with genre, like do fusion like genre fusion. I think that I'm, I'm going to say this and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause you've done a little bit more reading about this. I feel like older movies were maybe like less hesitant to do a little genre fusion. I think we say that, Oh, old Hollywood was so formulaic. It was all by the books. I think that they were willing to do a lot more genre fusion because like very rarely do I think nowadays we get like a girls buddy movie rom com. Cause yeah. I mean like because Bridesmaids is barely a rom-com in my opinion. Like that's not the romance- movie's
0: not a rom-com
1: in exactly. any sense It's of the a word. comedy. It's got like a role like a romance in it. Like Kristen Wiig's character gets a man at the end of it, but it's not like it's, the romance is not as central to the plot line or as necessary for it as it is in this movie. Um And I I think that's what makes this movie so smart as a Mm rom-com, the fact that it's using another genre to propel itself forward. Yeah. Because if you took out the buddy plot, the, the romance falls apart, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think you're right about old Hollywood, you know, being able to do a little bit more genre fusion. I'm specifically thinking in terms of incorporating a romance into the plot. Are you familiar with the Thin Man at all? The Thin Man movies? Yes. Yes. So, if you're not familiar with those, uh, for those listening at home, it's a detective noir, I believe, duology of films. There might be more, but I'm I'm only familiar with the two um, about this couple named Nick and Nora Charles, who uh, they solve, you know, they solve crimes, and it's I I cannot remember if they're pre-hays code or not, but. It's about them solving crimes, but it is just as much about them as a couple. And I think the I hear more people talk about The Thin Man as a romance than I do as a noir, even though it is technically classed as a noir. And yeah, so I think you're right. I think old Hollywood, because film was such a new medium, I mean, when... This was when Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was made in 1953. The industry had only been around for maybe 20 years. You know, it, Warner Brothers started in 1923. So yeah, it had probably been around for about 20 years. That's in in terms of how we think of cinema now, that's infancy. They had just about started doing uh, color film. You know, this, is, this was advertised as being in Technicolor. So they were barely you know beyond you know figuring out we can use a camera to make movies so i think it was willing to play with genre a lot more because it was still not finding its the cinema wasn't still finding its footing but it hadn't become so set in what we understand as cinema yet which i think happened probably around i'm around the same time as when harry met sally in the mid 80s when you know and and that's the movie i credit as being a sort of you know blueprint for the contemporary rom-com. And I feel like cinema, the idea of what cinema is got kind of locked in around that same time, primarily because we were making what I can only describe as a metric fuck ton of movies in the 80s. You know, there were people doing three, four, five movies a year in 1985. So I think, to your point, I think old Hollywood was able to genre bend a lot more because we didn't really know the potential of cinema yet so we just kind of chucked spaghetti at the wall and s- like figured out what stuck you know what i mean yeah because i think that if this was like a different podcast
1: where we were looking at buddy movies this would easily go on it too but i think it's just as valid to look at it as a rom-com and a buddy movie also um the double wedding at the end because just because i'd like to talk about the double wedding wedding um it reminds me so much of the ending of princess and the Popper. and then i started thinking oh, wait Maybe the
0: real rom com is Lorelai and Dorothy. Maybe this I knew is the you were gonna make romance. it gay. I knew it. Oh, I saw God. that shot. I saw that shot of both of them together coming down the aisle, and I was like, "Rebecca's gonna make this gay."
1: I'm always gonna make it gay. I'm sorry. Wow, you're getting married with your best friend on the same day, wearing the same dress.
0: I mean, I'm sorry. To I'm be fair. Make it gay. In your defense, I did think that because if you were reading this through a contemporary lens or if you made this movie now and had that shot, yeah, everyone's going to assume that's either got homoerotic subtext or is outwardly queer. Because you don't cuz there's a there's a very brief shot right before that where the the priest or whatever says take your places. I didn't realize that both Gus and Malone were on that altar. <laughs> So it's like, yeah. yeah, that could definitely be read as queer. But like, and I don't know, you could make a queer version of this, you know, because it's two best friends going on a cruise by themselves, you know, with no sh- other chaperone, which is what Dorothy's supposed to be. Uh, but yeah, you could, de- you could make this queer if you wanted to, so I don't blame you. Yeah, I,
1: I think it's fun. And I mean, like, it didn't even hit me until the end. I you I'm shocked. I usually... Can make something gay within the first fifteen or twenty minutes, but I didn't even think about it until the end. So pat on the back for me. Yeah, I don't know. I really, I really like this. Like as a kind of like old Hollywood rom com, I'd be interested in watching like more like old Hollywood rom coms and seeing like is this just like what they were like at the time? Was the rom com kind of in tandem with another genre at the same time, or was there like a like a legitimately like strictly rom com thing yeah. um, going on in this early time? another thing that like makes this like kind of like a very early rom-com is the fact that they have a rom-com kid um oh they the do of, like, oh, Henry boy! yes oh my god like i was thinking of cassie the entire like from ant-man and the wasp and ant-man the entire time he was on the screen in those like two or three like not key scenes but like really funny scenes yeah and um yeah i i think it's al- i think it's always good when a rom-com has a kid um just yeah. because you know the wisdom from the mouths of babes or. Are- whatever the saying is.
0: Yeah, because he's only in, I believe, three sequences. He's in that sequence at the dinner table, which it's there's a whole joke about every man on the ship wanting to sit at the same table as Lorelai and Dorothy and... Lorelai's trying to set Dorothy up so that her friend can marry a man with money, and so she makes this little joke about if somebody has and valet after their name, they've got money. And she sees this kid's name, thinking it's this big, you know, rich man. And he comes to the table, and he can't be more than ten years old. He was so stink, and it's funny. I was thinking that kid's probably the only one in this movie that's still alive. Um, yeah, very morbid <laughs> thought, but yeah, it it plays into what I was trying to think of. I was trying to think of the term this entire discussion one of the big tenets of the screwball comedy because i would say that this probably at the time and probably and still could be marketed as a screwball comedy which is a very classic old hollywood trope that's what arsenic and old lace is that's what his girl friday is that's what a lot of the other films that howard hawks did were and honestly like we've been talking about you know it's this genre fusion the screwball comedy is a lost art and i wish we could bring it back because i feel like it's been replaced with like the raunch raunchy comedy you know i'm specifically thinking of stuff like Step Brothers, and like while i love Step Brothers and i love a good sort of raunchy comedy i don't think it has the same appeal as the screwball comedy because the screwball comedy i feel like you can kind of get away with anything so long as you justify it with it you know it because the the concept is so ridiculous to begin with you can kind of get away with anything whereas like raunchy comedies just kind of try to get away with everything by making everything a sick joke and that's like it it can either hit or it can you know it can be a it's it's sailing so far above people's heads it's at fucking cruising altitude you know what i mean yeah
1: i think that like I've, I've talked about bridesmaids not in just this episode but in uh past episodes i think that that's like a fairly decent raunchy comedy because it's mm-hmm. not like so disgusting it's like it's just so like it's more like in the cringe comedy area that I don't yeah. hate um but it's not so raunchy that it's disgusting but um yeah i really like this as a screwball comedy like specifically that scene where they're trying to get the photo negatives off of him they have the heat in their room turned all the way up they give him um like a whiskey um bourbon like cocktail with sleeping pills in it too to really <laughs> to really drive it home. And then um that gets him to take the jacket off. They can't find the negatives in the jacket. So then they're like, oh he needs water. So um Dorothy pours an entire pitcher of water on his pants and then they have to take it take the pants off and then an attendant or somebody working on the ship comes in right at the moment they're taking his pants off. And it's, it's so like... fucking funny. And it's like also it's also just a good moment for, like, Dorothy and Malone's relationship development, too, because yeah. now she
0: knows, oh, he's playing us, my turn to play him. So. Yeah, it's it's incredibly funny. It's about two seconds from turning into Weekend at Bernie's the entire time. And I think that's probably just because we as contemporary viewers hear Lorelai say, oh, is three sleeping pills enough? And go, you're going to kill him. This is going to turn into either Weekend at Bernie's or Heather's. Like, I feel like that's a very contemporary worry Whereas you could get away with a thing like that in, in 1953 and no one's going to bat a fucking eye. You know, every housewife in America was high on opioids all the time because their husbands yeah. were abusing them. But like, uh, you know, I I feel like that that sequence, I think, is probably my favorite in the movie. Like, I think mm-hmm. it it is the pinnacle of the screwball comedy, but it is also the pinnacle of these women being knowing how to game the system. And like you said, it's a really good sort of step in that relationship for for malone and for for dorothy and it's it's clever too like it's really well blocked i guess for lack of a better word because the way they get his jacket off is by turning the heat up so that he'll be willing to take it off the way they the way they get his pants off that sounds so awful is by their they say he's hot so they say oh we'll give you some water so you can cool down and they're pouring the pitcher over him and like dorothy just kind of deliberately put like yeah, pulls she- it on his pants. Like it's it's very cleverly blocked. It's very cleverly like well thought out, which I love. And I think that's the thing about old Hollywood films is that the bits that always impress me are these bits that are really blocked down to the moment. It's almost comparable to, I don't know if you ever saw the play that goes wrong. Uh, which yes. is a yeah I'm it's very well aware yes if you are not familiar with that it is an actual live stage play that is about this amateur theater company who's trying to put it on play and everything is going wrong and the thing about that show is that there are, are accidents but they are very intentionally staged accidents for jokes so they are you know blocked down to the second and i feel like that you know, that kind of system is very much what's used in old screwball comedies very specifically here, both with that sequence and with the sequence where Lorelai's trying to search Malone's room for the negatives before that, and she gets locked in by one of the housekeepers or whatever, and then tries to sneak out the porthole, but she gets stuck and the small child comes and it's this very sort of cleverly blocked sequence of, of trying to hide the fact that she's stuck sneaking out of this guy's room. So, yeah, it's it's very specific blocking, which I feel like is a thing, even with comedies now that you don't get a whole, you don't get a lot of physical comedy in that way anymore.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of like another like Peyton Reed really likes physical comedy. And that's why Bring It On works so well. Yes, because Bring It On is all about physical comedy. And then down with love, I've also heard is very much reliant on that too. So maybe, maybe in the future we'll have to think about that and Absolutely, maybe, yeah, is that a newish like hawks? I have no idea. But I'm trying to think of the other like really fun moments with blocking that impressed me. And I'm thinking of the court scene at the very end where, um, lorelei has been accused of stealing the tiara mm-hmm. and um, Gus is right there demanding to see her after she performs Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. And then um, Dorothy is like, well, you go with Gus and you see if you can get the money for a new tiara out of him because the, the tiara has been stolen out of her dressing room. Mm-hmm. Um by piggy i might add he's he's trying to get a move over on insurance um and so she's like i'm gonna go deal with the cops because she's getting called to night court so she puts on a blonde wig and has her costume on all of lorelei's jewels on in a huge ass fur coat and oh, such she a goes luck. on this vi- she does the funniest like Marilyn slash lorelei parody um mm-hmm. at the court and um she asks uh piggies like a uh, wife's in- lawyer no uh, that's I the think- insurance guy oh she asked the insurance guy have you ever seen me perform and he's like no and she's like oh then thanks for giving me the chance and then she whips the coat off and goes into <laughs> so gentlemen <God>. <laughs> like not gentleman purple um diamonds are a girl's best friend and it is single-handedly like the
0: best scene <laughs> in the entire so movie funny it's so funny because it's I, and we were saying we didn't realize there's a reprise of that song in this in this film and also the thing that gets me about that is or that scene rather is at the end you realize that Piggy it wasn't Lorelai that took the the uh, tr at all it was Piggy trying to pull one over on his insurance which it's hilarious that insurance fraud is a, is like a B plot yeah. here um but so they. Malone goes and gets Piggy, brings him to the court, like, and reveals the tiara, but they were saying that Lorelai- if Lorelai's charges would be dropped if she gave the tiara back to Piggy, and so Piggy tries to give it to the judge, but no, he says, no, you have to do it this way, so- then you know Dorothy posing as Lorelei gets up, takes the tr from him, hands the tr to the judge. The judge hands the tr to the insurance guy. The insurance guy hands it back to Piggy, and it's so silly. But it's so- again, it's one of those very specifically blocked screwball comedy bits. And I'm like, in any other movie, that would have been the stupidest thing in the world. But because we have just watched Dorothy do gentlemen prefer or. Uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend for this court full of men i don't even care like i my suspension is my suspension of disbelief is so convinced that this could happen within the narrative that it's just it's fun as hell i think that more movies need to feature insurance plot as the d plot yes personally
1: um like insurance uh, fraud (laughs) i yeah that was so funny and I think that like our conversations and like we're both coming from a theater background. So maybe you'll understand what I mean by this, but I think that in the twentieth century, plays had a lot more genuine meaning and genuine presence in American pop culture than they do now. Yeah. And that's why these things feel so natural because they are planned down to the second, like you do in theater. What you said about um play that goes wrong reminded me of the fact that like so many of these actors were doing both stage and film like pretty Mm -hmm. simultaneously and would do like and that was just their bread and butter like elizabeth taylor um did theater um laurence olivier was also doing film um in like all the shakespeare movie adaptations so like plays had such a strong presence in american pop culture that i think the acting and the directing of film was borrowing from that because that's really the only like Foreground that we had for acting as like an art form. Yeah, film was
0: yeah, and I, I to your point about the direction. I remember reading a lot of things about how, like I was saying, we hadn't figured cinema out yet. We did. We weren't aware of what cameras could do. So a lot of directors were blocking things like it would be a stage play, like like it was you because I, what I noticed with this film is that there are very few cuts. You know, normally mm-hmm. when you're in a film watching a film now, if you're watching a scene between two people, it will cut between you know say Marilyn Monroe's face and then Dorothy Shaw's face like they would each be in the frame this film has such long extended cuts of like just one person's perspective I was I noticed that a lot during the Diamonds Are Girls Best friend sequence especially because there's a teeny tiny little goof in one of the, the shots because it's a probably a 45 second shot which for Hollywood now is a long ass time and it's She's in the middle of this number, she's singing, and she does something and she moves away from one of the men that are dancing with her, and a piece of her hair gets dislodged, and so it's kind of sitting there and it's sticking out, and it, you know, in any other movie... In any movie made now, rather, they would cut and they would fix her hair and they would go back and do it again. But that shot, I it's gotta be a 45-minute long or 45-second long shot <laughs> with her hair just sticking out and then it cuts again. But the, and then that shot, the next shot, even though her hair is fixed, is still pretty long. There's the the sequence at the end where Lorelai's talking to Gus's father, and the entire sequence I think maybe cuts to his father's face like two or three times. You know, they don't do a ton of both sides coverage. A lot of it is just these really extended shots of of Lorelai and, and Gus standing together, and you see uh his father's back. So I think very much so this film was still living in the era of we hadn't learned to move the camera in a way that it that cameras move contemporary like in a contemporary sense. Uh, which I think is so fascinating because there are there is a lot of complaint now about too many cuts in films, and I think it's a it's a complaint that I agree with in certain circumstances. You know, so it was nice to go back and watch a movie that just let itself live with its actors in the take and not feel like they have to cut between coverage a whole ton. I think that's and that's coming from somebody who also you know watches a ton of films and and you know thinks in terms of these technical specs but like you were saying I think at that point in American cinema history we were definitely still borrowing from from theater and and the fact that this is based on a, a stage musical probably helps that as well
1: and I just want to compare this to the other like just as iconic performance of Diamonds Are A Girl's Best Friend by Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge oh there yeah are so many cuts in that and I don't think it's just Boz Lorman because we see more of christian played by ewan mcgregor's face watching and perceiving her than we do of her actually dancing and i remember i tried to re-watch moulin rouge because i saw the musical on the stage version a couple months ago i watched the movie before and i was trying to watch the the can-can dancers for their costumes Uh the the camera is more focused on the people watching the performance than it is the actual dancers and so i was shocked to see that in um gentlemen prefer blondes the original diamonds are a girl's best friend number has zero cuts out to the audience it has after... two it has, has two- at has the two? very
0: end when she's like it's because obviously this number was shot on a huge sound stage and it cuts twice i think to once when marilyn's sort of reaching out into the audience, or lorelei's reaching out into the audience to sort of take gus's hand because he's supposed to be mm-hmm. watching this number um that and then i think it cuts one more time during the sort of big grand finale of the number and that's yeah that's the only two times you see anyone perceiving this perceiving Lorelei doing anything and that's the interesting about this film is that I think it now like you said about Moulin Rouge this film would be so much about the way men perceive these women and that is you know Obviously, we get all these shots of like the entire Olympic team fawning over Dorothy and Lorelai, but it's not that's not what's leading the narrative. Like with Moulin Rouge, and I think thematically it does sort of work with the, you know, the themes that Bazerman is playing with. With Moulin Rouge, it's all about the way that Satine is perceived by men like it's that is more Mm -hmm. that point of view is more important to Boz Lerman as a filmmaker than Satine as a character. But because Lorelai and Dorothy are leading this, their perspective always wins out. So yeah, you get to watch this entire big studio number for Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, because Gus doesn't matter. You know, what matters yeah. is her doing this massive number, showing off her skills, and, you know, showing that she doesn't give a shit about him anymore, because Dorothy literally says to him, You know, he's freaking out and she's like, well, you should go see the number she's doing next. And then that song happens, which is obviously about like, I don't care about love. I don't care about romance. You know, I material things are very important to me. And so it's all about her perspective on that and not about her, it's not about voyeurism. So little of this film is about voyeurism once you get past the first like 20 minutes and it's been established that every man who ever lays eyes on these two women is in love with them.
1: I actually like, I love that you said that because I don't think that this is a movie that even really has the male gaze at all. No, for like, being directed by Maryland a dude. Movies, yeah, I know, right? Like other Maryland movies are absolutely informed by the male gaze, especially the seven-year itch. And I would even say How to Marry a Millionaire is very male gazy. This movie actually does not feel as traditionally male gazy to me, even in the romance scenes with because I just want to make sure I like talk about dorothy and malone a little bit before we head out but like even in their romance scenes it doesn't feel like he's perceiving her in any way she i feel like she has more control over this relationship than he does over her even though he's the one putting the moves on her to get to lorelei and figure out if she's having an affair or doing um nsfw shenanigans like i think that like (laughs) you heard me um i think that like the way that Dorothy and Lorelai command every single scene they're in and every interpersonal dynamic they're in, like even when they get themselves into trouble, I think they have a really, really good time of asserting their own agency mm-hmm. and making sure that how they want to be perceived is what we perceive too. Um, yeah. I, I love this movie. I think that this is actually like maybe, maybe not maybe it's taking the place of 42nd Street now because like I don't know. I think that this works really, really well as like maybe even like a like I would say it's still a very early rom-com. But a lot of the things that we associate these like girl boss buddy movies with is are mm-hmm. present in this like Ocean's 8, I feel like is a descendant of Gentleman yeah. Prefer Blondes. One hundred percent
0: for sure. And I, I wanted to note something about the agency because I was reading, like I mentioned earlier, the trivia for this movie on IMDb. Um, the person who did their Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe's dance coaching for this and dance coaching and walking to, like, get that very sultry walk was Gwen Verdon, who was, if you are not familiar with Gwen Verdon, a musical theater icon. Uh, she And she worked a lot with Bob Fosse, who was the choreographer of the 20th century. And she was known for things like Sweet Charity, which, ha- you know, was very centered on female agency and using that to a woman's advantage you know using men's voyeurism to a woman's advantage so it makes a thousand percent sense that they are able to carry themselves with such agency in these scenes knowing that she was the one helping with the blocking yeah like i said
1: this is a girl like a girl buddy comedy where they are they are on a mission to make their own rom-com they are on it like and i think that that to me 100% like if they're like I'm gonna fuck with the way men are perceiving me I'm going to hold myself a certain way carry myself a certain way I oh my god I did not know that Gwen Verdon worked on this movie and now my brain is exploding because I love damn Yankees so much yes and I love sweet charity wow my brain is exploding right now so yeah um, thank you for sharing that oh my god
0: of course. Is there anything you wanted to to wrap up with before we before we head out of here? Um. Oh my God. I can't believe I forgot to talk about this. Um. Because I feel like we
1: had so many other things to talk about with this movie. Movie. But the end. Um. When Malone is apologizing to Dorothy. Um. About like yes. pulling one on her. Oh, I saw Maggie like melt in the frame, and I knew. Oh. Like, that's exactly what i'm about to say and i wrote it down he says everything else i said to you i meant meaning like that he liked her and that he wanted to be with her Woo! that shit does a number on me and i'm like oh yeah rom-com rom-com mm-hmm. and he does that grand gesture for her at the end yeah in the um the scene too by you know Saying, like, I'm dropping this case because she says in the middle of her thing, like, oh, uh, my friend Dorothy is so in love with Malone and blah, 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 blah. And he knows it's Dorothy because he spent a lot of time with her and he can see past the the wig and the makeup and the outfit. Um, And he drops the case right there.
0: Oh, it is real fucking romance, you guys. Like that is I've watched a lot of romantic things in my life. I would put malone dropping the evidence and dropping the case against lorelei for dorothy up there with jack putting the ring in the coin slot in while you were sleeping like it's just this it's a the thing that makes grand gestures so good is that they don't have to necessarily be grand they just have to mean something very like they have to be very important emotionally to one or more persons involved you know it's it's that it's the ring in the coin slot it's the you know it's in rye lane when she's on the boat and she's like i knew you would wave like it's it's these things that play into what we understand about these characters and it is obvious that dorothy values loyalty very very strongly you know she's very loyal to to lorelei the whole movie she says that to malone and so for him to display loyalty like that and to, not just for dorothy but for dorothy's friend you know to get these charge tra- charges dropped not against her but against her friend is just oh my god it is so what the spice girls if you want to be my lover you gotta get with my friends yes oh my! we're both fist pumping the air right now it is this movie outsells it does and it's like i i always go into old hollywood films like wanting to take things with a grain of salt because sometimes you watch them and it's like how did this get made? You know, especially with, you know, looking at things through a contemporary lens and seeing racism, xenophobia, homophobia, that kind of thing. Because for every gentleman prefer blondes, there are movies out there like that that were made, especially in the in the middle of the Hays Code era. You know, I had a an adventure where friends and I decided to watch every mummy movie ever made from the Boris Karloff one up to the shitty Tom Cruise like 2017 one how dare you do that to yourself most of them were flagrantly racist so like not all of old hollywood is good but to watch something like this that was produced in 1953 and say if someone did that for me now marriage immediately i get why they had a double wedding like it's so it's so refreshing and i feel like there's there's a conversation about a lot of people specifically on film twitter and i say film twitter derogate like in a derogatory way that are like i don't want to watch movies older than like 1980 because the world was fucked like no i think movies like this are the reason that we should be preserving films like this and be continuing to explore films back past when our parents were kids you know i really do hope that we continue to do more uh more old hollywood films on this list i know I mentioned His Girl Friday. I would love to do that at some point. I would love to do What a Way to Go. I'd love to do the rest of Marilyn Monroe's filmography because obviously she leaned very heavily not only into the screwball comedy, but into romance because she was a romantic at heart. So I think this was just I'm very glad that we picked this as our sort of entry point to, uh, you know, Hays Code Hollywood, so to speak.
1: I think that maybe in the fall, we can have have like a kind of um, old Hollywood month. I'd love to do that because I would really love to watch The Gentleman and the Showgirl um, because it's a movie that I want to see for ages. And it's Laurence Olivier and Marilyn Monroe in a rom-com. And I'm like, I'm dying to see that actually. And so, yeah, I'm really glad that this was our entry point and that it was such a strong entry point into talking about You know how these movies were made because, like you said, a lot of the rom coms nowadays rely on realism. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I think for some, it's a good thing and it works. Um, but I think if you tried to make this movie realistic at all, it would be a fault. I, like, actually, there's been some other rom-coms that we've talked about that were made even, like, 20 years ago. And it's like, oh, if this was remade, what would you do? I don't want to see this one remade, actually. No, at all. I mean, ever. And, unless you're going to make it the rom-com about Lorelai and Dorothy, I don't want to see it remade <laughs> because it's so perfect. Like, But that's changing the story. That's a totally different movie. It's inspired by um, yeah. Gentleman prefer Blondes. It's not a Gentleman prefer Blondes remake. Um, But, yeah, I... I love this movie. I'm really glad that we both like latched onto it for both like the buddy comedy things
0: and also the genuine romantic comedy traits that it has. Yeah. So if you would like to continue the conversation, you can follow the pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at getthepasspod and on Letterboxd at thepasspod. If you want to follow me on socials, you can follow me on Instagram at Rachel underscore spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L on Twitter at Maggie underscore Rachel and on TikTok at Maggie Rachel. If you'd like to follow me on socials, you can find me on Twitter at
1: with a hero and on Instagram at king of the chess people. Now, next week we will be doing our part one of two Shakespeare episodes. Um, and next week we are going to be doing two different versions of much ado about nothing for, you know, a good comparative film analysis. Uh, We are going to be doing the 1993 Much Ado About Nothing directed by the illustrious Kenneth Branagh starring himself as Benedict and, and his wife, his then wife, Emma Thompson, as Beatrice. And then additionally, for something more contemporary, the Joss Whedon Much Ado from 2012 starring Alexis Denisoff as Benedict and Amy Acker as Beatrice. Would you like to add anything before we head out?
0: I am very excited about this because of the two of us, Rebecca is the Shakespeare scholar of the group. And so I am interested to look at this from two different perspectives. Somebody who just got their fucking graduate degree and is a Shakespeare scholar versus myself who works in film but is not coming from so much of an analytical standpoint. And also Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite Shakespeare play. So this is going to be very exciting.
1: Yeah, Much Ado is... Uh, my favorite comedy of the Shakespeare's. Um, I'll probably talk about my favorite Shakespeare stuff next week. But yeah, this is my favorite of his comedies. It is so good. um, And I cannot wait to talk about it either. And also, by the time this episode gets posted, I will be an official master's graduate student.
0: Everybody congratulate Rebecca on socials. Thank you. See you next week.